Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here today. Thank you so much for being here and joining us. What a great time of worship this morning. And now we get to just continue it by looking at some things from God's word. We worship God by getting into his word as well as singing and and everything we do in life. We had a great worship community night last night here, and we had a lot of people in our worship community here just worshiping and praising God. And one of the things we talked about was that worship is not just about the music. It's something that we can do all the time. When you get up in the morning and praise God for a new day, that's worship. When you go off to work and you thank God that you have a job, that's worship. Even if you don't like your job, you can still worship about it. And everything we do is an act of worship when done with the right heart and the right attitude. So we're going to continue worshiping God by studying his word in a little bit. But first, just a public service announcement. Next week on Labor Day weekend, we will not have kindergarten on up in their normal Um, children's programming. So nursery and preschool, we'll still have things for them to do, uh, but the rest of you with with kids that are kindergarten on up may want to bring a coloring book or something like that just to keep them occupied. While they're in the service, it'll be a great, great time. Either way, go ahead and bring them out. If you're watching online, you're welcome to come on in and uh, would love to have you next week. It's going to be a great service. The continuation of the series that we are doing, actually the conclusion of this series called Justice and the Bible. Now, if you're new, my name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church, and I would love to connect with you. So feel free to fill out our connect card at efree.org slash connect. Would love to answer any questions you have and get to know you a little bit better. This series on justice, I hope, has been helpful for you. As we wrap it up next week, we're going to go into a series on 1 Timothy, which we started a couple of years ago. We had to interrupt it for the pandemic. Now we're going to get back into it. Again, we're excited about that. It's got some controversial topics of its own, so make sure you're here for those first few messages in 1 Timothy. But the the Justice series, I hope, has been helpful for you and at least given you some practical insights, maybe some perspective that you didn't have before. Listen, I know that there are going to be things, there have been things said, uh, there will be things said maybe next week, there will definitely be things said today that various people are going to disagree with and find objectionable. There's, there's no way around that. But my hope is that you can find some nuggets of insight, some nuggets of perspective, some biblical truth that will shine through. And whether or not you walk away and say, yeah, I agree with everything that was said today, you can say, hey, this is the thing that really God used to touch my heart or the thing that I learned that I didn't know before. So that's my prayer for the whole series and certainly for this message today as well. Now you've heard for the last couple of weeks from Alex Bryant on racism, racial ignorance, and racial insensitivity. And you've heard at the beginning of this series from Thaddeus Williams on social justice A and social justice B, two different visions of social justice. And I have taught on the God who is just, the God of justice. He's not only just because he's fair, but he is just because he is our very source of understanding justice itself. Without a universal uh, moral lawgiver, without a universal source of justice, well, then justice is whatever people want it to be. Whatever people decided to be, how can you say that this person is wrong and what they say is just if there is no universal source of justice? So if a group of people were to decide out of the blue that justice is not allowing women to drive and forcing them to wear burqas, then who's to say they're wrong if there's no universal source of justice that created people with value and dignity and says they're to be respected? And yet this is exactly what's happening in Afghanistan today. And so I want to share with you a little story from Afghanistan that kind of kicks off our point today. The message is called counterfeit justice. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to give you a story that that really demonstrates this well. It's from a woman named Freeba. She lives in London today. This is a true story. That's not her real name. Uh, But she was raised in Afghanistan, and she says this. 
Living under the rule of the Taliban regime is like being in an abusive relationship. At first, it's good. They make lots of promises. But while you are being lulled into a false sense of security, they are making their plans. Soon, and little by little, as the world gets bored of Afghanistan and the media moves on to another news story, they tighten their power grip day by day, and the savage cycle begins anew. My father, she says, was born in Herat and graduated from Kabul University. When the Taliban moved into Herat, he had the opportunity to leave, but he stayed. He loved his job, and he loved Herat. Life was brutal under the Taliban regime. He had four daughters who were being robbed of an education and a young baby son, but work was rewarding. He had ambitions for himself and for us. One morning in June of 1999, my father had just finished breakfast and was getting ready to leave for work. He looked at me and smiled as he got on his bike and left. A few minutes later, some of our neighbors appeared at our door with his bike. They said the Taliban had taken him. I will never forget my mother's face. It was frozen in shock. She, she took my five-year-old brother's hand and ran out of the door, desperate to find him. That evening, she returned with the weight of the world on her shoulders. There was no news of my father. Every day, my mother would visit every Taliban office, and they refused to listen to her. After exhausting every avenue, my uncle went to Kandahar, where he had heard the Taliban had moved some prisoners, but there was no news. My mother was strong. She would not let it go. Against family advice, she took my brother, because under Taliban rule, she could only travel with a male even though he was just a five-year-old child, and went to Kandahar, to the office of the leader of the Taliban, Mullah Omar. The Taliban beat her and threatened her and said if she was seen again, she would be stoned to death. My mother returned home disappointed and defeated. Life under the Taliban went from li a living hell to a black hole of hopelessness. Our father had hopes for us that we wanted to fulfill. I still remember his charming smile. We cannot even mourn him, and we will not forget him as we watch the news of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan again. I fear that history will repeat itself. I am now married and live in England, but I am afraid for my mother, sisters, and brother who are still in Afghanistan, and for the millions of families who will suffer pain and loss like we did, their only crime being born in Afghanistan. The Taliban would say that what they are doing is just. It's right. It's holy. It is the will of Allah. But the God of justice says something very different. What we see in Afghanistan today is injustice, but it's more than that. It's counterfeit justice. It's claiming to be right and pure and holy and true and at the same time being evil and mistreating image bearers of God. The Bible warns in Isaiah chapter 5 what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. But this is what counterfeit justice does. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, there have been people committing injustice against other people, committing sin, but saying that it was actually just and good. We would say that they are justifying their actions. They're trying to make just what is unjust. Many people justified slavery. Some even used the Bible to try to justify it, which is reprehensible. 
Many people thought that the Jim Crow laws, which started in the late 1800s, were just, but they were not. You may have heard the name Margaret Sanger. She thought she was just when she published articles on racial cleansing and eliminating the unfit to create a race of thoroughbreds. She promoted Nazi ideas about eugenics and race. And she wrote, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. She wanted to use churches and Christians and pastors to advance this agenda, and then she created Planned Parenthood to implement her ideas about society. Even today, Planned Parenthood targets minorities. They plant almost all of their clinics in minority areas. That's probably why black women are more than four times as likely to have an abortion. Planned Parenthood literally calls that justice. Reproductive what? Rights. It's our right. It's our right to terminate a life. Justice. But it's not justice. It's counterfeit justice. It's calling evil good, the taking of an innocent life. And I could go on and on and on with examples just like this, but our time this morning is limited. So here's what I want to do. This is not going to be a normal message in case you haven't figured that out already. This is not a standalone message. If you are here and you are visiting, you are in for a wild ride. And this is not what we normally do here, but it's important. And you have to watch the whole series to get the balanced picture. You have to watch all of the messages leading up to this and especially the message next week to understand the whole picture of what we're talking about when we talk about justice here because you can't fit it all into one Sunday. But what we're going to talk about is very important. It's counterfeit justice. Because we want to know, what does the Bible say about these issues that are affecting our world and our culture and our society and many of our churches today? What does the Bible have to say? Dr. Williams called this counterfeit justice social justice B. He talked about social justice A, which is a biblical social justice, things we should pursue that align with God's word. He talked about social justice B, which is what we're going to get into today. Today is the day when we're going to outline some of the core themes that make up social justice B thinking and talk about what the Bible has to say about them. But before we do, we better start in prayer. So would you bow your heads with me and pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is not an easy topic for us to engage with. It is confusing, it is convoluted, and it is intentionally so because the enemy is crafty. And he likes to make things difficult, and he likes to take good and mix it with bad and twist things up so that it's hard even for your followers to know what is up and what is down, what is right and what is wrong. And Lord, we ask for your wisdom. You say that if anyone asks for wisdom that you will give it generously. And so, God, we are asking. We're asking for insight to understand the issues of our day, to understand what your word says about them and, and things that have been obfusc obfuscated and, and made so foggy in our minds and in our culture and so difficult to understand. I pray, Lord, that today you would just give us some glimpse to know these things better, to know what you say about them, to be able to rightly divide truth from untruth, to do justice and detect counterfeit justice. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
One quick note before we dig into this. I think it's important that we recognize we are often working from different dictionaries. We have different thoughts about the words that we use and the phrases that we use. And so it's very hard to have a productive conversation about the specifics and almost impossible to get into a lot of the details in a message like this because we can't have the back and forth dialogue for an hour to figure out what do you mean by this and what do I mean by this? You see, when some people talk about critical race theory, they mean a legal analysis tool for identifying the hidden impact of racial disparity among diverse people groups. I know I just dove right into that, didn't I? And other people, when they hear critical race theory, they think Marxism and race shaming and collective guilt. When some people hear Black Lives Matter, they just think about a true statement that black lives do matter and the uniquely difficult situation that many black people find themselves in today. When other people hear Black Lives Matter, they think of it as an endorsement of an organization or a movement that wants to destroy the traditional family and promote alternative lifestyles and defund the police and, of course, Promote Marxism. And there are so many things like this, so many phrases, so many terms that suffer from both complexity and semantic overload where we ask them to do too much in our culture. Social justice, systemic racism, white privilege, anti-racism, and many more things like this. And we need to always be asking the question, what do you mean by that? How are you using that phrase? We are not working from the same dictionaries, which makes it so much more difficult to talk about these issues with any kind of specificity. Philippians 2 says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. That means giving people the benefit of the doubt. When you disagree with someone, recognizing that they may be working from a different dictionary than you are, and that's not necessarily wrong. They just have a different understanding, different background, different experience. They've been reading different things. And you have to work to try to really understand what they are saying. I think that's an important truth to recognize as we go into what we're about to talk about. And inevitably, this message today is going to launch a number of conversations in your homes and and among groups of friends. And as we have those conversations, remember, we're working from different dictionaries. Seek to understand. Seek to ask, what is it you really mean when you say this before you launch your counterattack? Let's talk about social justice B. What is social justice be? Simply put, it's anything that claims to be just or to seek justice, but is actually contradicting the God of justice. It may appear to be justice at first, but we need to look closer. Now, most social justice be philosophy today can be traced back to a group of philosophers in 1920s Germany. These were Marxist philosophers who established some principles that later would be called critical theory. And I wish we had the time to really unpack all of this. There is some fascinating history there and to understand what they were trying to do and what other people have taken and and built on that. But let me just give you the 50,000 foot fly over here. Critical theory is supposed to explain why things are as bad as they are, who is able to change it, and describe what needs to be criticized and removed and what needs to be added to make society better. That's what a critical theory is supposed to do. And some of you may be wondering right now, uh, why are we talking about this in church? I came here to study the Bible, not to hear about critical theory. Well, here's the thing. Critical theory, you may or may not realize, 
is having a massive impact on our culture, our society, our children, and on our churches. And, and, and more than I realized until studying this in depth. And the Bible has a lot to say about the principles that have been built on critical theory. And so we need to talk about it. But of course, if we're going to talk about it, we also have to understand it a little bit better. So let me just give you a little more overview here of contemporary critical theory. So that was critical theory in the 1920s. And many critical theories built on top of that, subfields developed on that, like, for instance, critical race theory. And these critical theories typically build on works of Marxism, feminism, anti-colonialism, anti-capitalism, socialism, and, and many other schools of thought. And so it's not one unified group. Now, please hear me carefully. The idea behind critical theories is not a bad one. Think about that definition I put up there earlier. If something's messed up, if something's wrong in the world, isn't it a good idea for us to figure out the problem, identify where it is, identify who can fix it, and figure out what steps we need to take things to remove things to add to our culture to make it better? Isn't that a good thing for us to do? And even critical race theory, which I'm sure most of you have heard by now, are familiar with by now, it is a, a kind of an offshoot of this or a continuation of, the, of cr a critical theory. It's a critical theory about race in particular. Even critical race theory, it starts with a wonderful question. A very good question. It asks the question, is it possible that there are some laws and systems and policies and structures in place that, while not obviously racist, are having an unjust and unfair impact on people of minorities, especially black people in particular in this country? And that's a good question to ask. That's a fine question to ask. And many laws in history would fall into this category. Isn't it possible that there are some laws today that might fall into this category or policies where maybe they are not obviously racist, but they may have racist intent, or even if not, they may accidentally create some kind of an unjust standard between different groups of people. And, and we should care about those things and find those things and correct those things. Now, the hallmark of any critical theory is liberation. That is a key word for any critical theory. It's liberation. The goal is to free people, not just from economic oppression or physical oppression, but from oppressive cultural values and oppressive social norms. In other words, if the culture values something that hurts some people, even if they're a minority, maybe we don't want that thing in our culture anymore. Maybe we don't want that value in our culture anymore. That's not a bad goal. There are some oppressive cultural values and social norms being implemented in Afghanistan as we speak. And we would disagree with those. And we would say those cultural norms need to be discovered and identified and, and removed if they're hurting people, even if those people are in minority groups. But here is the problem. Who gets to decide which values are oppressive? Who gets to decide which social norms are oppression and what counts as oppression? And that really is the core of the issue we are facing with social justice B. Some groups use critical theory and claims of injustice to push an agenda that is actually unjust. They use it to gain political power, to gain influence, to gain 
money to fill their bank accounts? I mean, did the millions of dollars in donations to the Black Lives Matter organization last year really do a lot to help the plight of black people, especially in inner city communities, or did it go to buy mansions for their founders? If you pay attention to the news, you know the answer to that question. Many of the people involved in social justice B, the social justice B advocates that are out there, are they doing it because they really want to help people or are they doing it for those $40,000 speaking gigs in private jets? This is the conflict of interest that you get with social justice B. Now, I want to be clear about something. Social justice B advocates don't agree on everything. They're not a monolithic group. There's a lot of different branches to this. They don't agree with each other on everything. For instance, some social justice B advocates will tell you that justice means letting trans women, that's biological men who think of themselves as women, compete in women's sports. They think that's justice. Other social justice B advocates will tell you that's injustice because biological males have an inherent physical advantage over biological females, and so it is actually injustice. In fact, there are some trans women that have been very actively outspoken against having trans women in women's sports. So I'm not trying to bandwagon all social justice be advocates together on everything. They are, they are a very diverse group of people in their thought. But there are some overarching principles that are driving this forward and pushing an agenda that we can look at and say there is a common thread here and we need to be careful about it. Careful because it is specifically against biblical thinking. And more than I realized when I started looking into this. So let me give you a few examples. I'm going to give you five aspects of social justice be thinking. And I wish I could give you 20. It was really hard to narrow this down to five. But I've tried to consolidate and keep this as high level as possible because our, our time is going to be limited here today. You're all good for another hour or so, right? Okay, the laughter tells me no. We are not going to have a closing song today, okay? So in case there's that dread in your mind of like, oh boy, we're getting up there to lunchtime. We still got that song to go. No, there's no closing song today. It's me and we're done, okay? We've thought this through a little bit. We've learned a few things. Number one thought about social justice B is that social justice B focuses on group identity. This is foundational to everything else that follows. It focuses on group identity. Your identity is wrapped up in your race, your gender, your sexuality, etc. But it doesn't stop there because social justice B goes further to rank these groups in hierarchies based on power and privilege. Where Marxism had the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the wealthy people and the laborers, social justice B divides people in other ways. Critical theory divides people in other ways. The groups with more power are automatically called oppressors. The groups at the bottom are automatically called oppressed. Now, is it true that some people in power can oppress people without power? Is it true? Yeah. Is it true that there are groups that gain power and then they oppress other groups? Absolutely. It's been true throughout history, and that's a real problem. But is it necessarily true that always anyone who belongs to a group identity of, that's considered a power group of people is always an oppressor of those in a different group? No. That's not true at all. And assuming that it's true, as social justice B does, and as critical theory tends to, leads to some very dangerous conclusions. Anyone 
in a group thought to have more power is demonized by social justice B. Regardless of their actions, their character, or their spiritual state, just being a part of the more powerful group identity is the problem. If you're in the oppressor group, your job is to reject your identity and give up as much privilege as you can to elevate the groups that are lower on the power hierarchy. And this thinking has caused social justice B authors to describe what they perceive as the, the biggest power group in some pretty interesting ways. For instance, social justice B leaders describe whiteness as a grotesque, quote, a grotesque incurable disease. Another one says that whiteness is a parasitic condition that renders its host perverse and for which there is no permanent cure. These are not fringe thoughts just. These are, these are concepts by leaders, um, some names who you might recognize who've written books and journal articles on these things. This is why one very popular black celebrity said this, the people that don't have melanin are a little less. They're acting out of a deficiency. So therefore, the only way they can act is evil. Now understand, I am not saying that every social justice be advocate agrees with this. But these are some prominent leaders in the social justice bee community that are influencing a lot of people. And when you can really find out what they really think, you get some things like this. It's the grouping of people into a group identity, demonizing them for that identity to try to push an agenda. And there are many other social justice bee thinkers saying things like this about men versus women, about heterosexuals versus LGBTQ, etc., and other group identities that are pitted against each other. And please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that's what everyone out there believes. I'm saying that's what a lot of their leaders, social justice bee leaders, are promoting, especially in conversations that they don't necessarily think everyone is paying attention to. Social justice bee makes everything about your group identity, and then it pits those groups against each other, and then it adds layers of implications to push a specific agenda. And I'm going to get into that agenda later. But before I do, let's just talk about what's wrong with thinking about ourselves this way, with this group identity being the most important thing about us. Well, the Bible teaches that our identity is not primarily based on our, our skin color, our, our race, our sexuality, our gender. Our identity is as image bearers of God. Genesis 1 says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Our identity, our value is not based on the melon in our skin. It's, it's based on the fact that God created us in his image with intrinsic value and deserving of respect and, and dignity. Our identity is first and foremost as, as human beings that were created by God. And any effect to see ourselves primarily by these identity groups and create this tribalism is getting away from the unity that God wants us to experience. And social justice B divides people into these tribes fighting based on their attributes. The Bible says that God made us with our attributes on purpose. The Bible says that we are wonderfully complex, made by God to be different and unique and distinct from each other, and God designed it that way. Psalm 139 says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. If you believe that God created people with all their diversity, then you cannot believe that our group identity should be the most important thing about us, more important than our identity as image bearers of God. Social justice begets identity 
wrong and emphasizes it to dangerous results. We're going to get into that more now because we're going to build on that with number two. Social justice B excuses sinful behavior for groups lower on the power hierarchy. If you're in an oppressed group, according to social justice B, you can make discriminatory remarks and it's not discrimination because you're in an oppressed group identity. If you're in a more oppressed group, your voice matters more. Your statements are automatically more truthful, even if they are factually inaccurate. It's what Vody Bauckham calls ethnic Gnosticism, the idea that because of your ethnicity, you have access to truth and knowledge that other people cannot have, and so you should automatically be believed, even if it goes against whatever evidence is out there. You have to be believed without evidence. You can actually do things that if you were in a different group, a higher level group identity on the power hierarchy would be sinful, but for you it's not because of your group identity. You can see why this group identity starts to cause problems. This is why last year you saw many celebrities and professors and media personalities saying, you know what, maybe it's okay to loot and, and damage people's property and burn buildings and, and even hurt people and attack people because of their group identity. They excused it. It's okay if they belong to a less privileged group. According to Social Justice B, if a person in an oppressed group insults or abuses or takes from a person in an oppressor group, it can't be discrimination. It can't be racism because racism now is defined as only being when a privileged race does that to a non-privileged race. It's not about whether or not you're discriminating someone on the basis of their race. It can only be racism if you're in a more privileged race to a lesser privileged race. But if you're in a lesser privileged race, you can do whatever you want. It can't be racism. That's what Social Justice B does with group identity. That's the whole point of dividing people into groups. What does the Bible say about this? Leviticus chapter 19. God says, do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. At the time this was written, you didn't have quite the same divide among the races as much as you did between the wealth classes. And so the lower privileged group here is the poor. And what does God say? Don't twist justice to favor the poor just because of their group identity. And also, don't be partial to the rich and powerful. Treat everyone fairly. The truth matters. What is actually true matters. You do not let someone's group identity trump what is actually true about a situation. Exodus 23 says, you must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. Boy, it's amazing to me that they had this exact same problem back in Exodus and Leviticus. And then he says, and do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. What is God saying? They had the same issues. The temptation to say, well, you know, because you're in this group identity, you're in a lesser privileged group, you can do things that are technically wrong, technically sinful, technically against the law, but it's okay because of your group identity. This is what social justice B does, and the Bible says no. Group identity should not be used to say who is right or who is wrong. Group identity should not be used to twist or slant justice. Listen, I have had pastors tell me, hey man, evidence shouldn't matter. You just have to believe people's lived experience. Well, that's relativism. That's the opposite of caring about the truth. Listen with compassion. Be empathetic to people's stories. You don't have to, to jump all over them and say, well, do you have evidence for that? No, 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 no. 
on, in these individual conversations, we, we need to be understanding and compassionate and careful and, and care about the other person. We don't have to try to prove a point in these individual conversations we may have with people. But the idea that you should believe something is true just because someone with a particular group identity says it is unbiblical. Don't show partiality based on group identity. Now, there's another side of that coin too. And the other side of that coin is that not only does social justice be tend to excuse sinful behavior for less powerful groups, it heaps collective guilt onto more powerful groups. Social justice B teaches that your group identity can cause you to inherit collective guilt. Collective guilt is actually a driving force behind motivating people in powerful groups to get behind social justice B and its agenda. The important distinction here is that it's not necessarily love or compassion or the grace of God that compels you to help someone. It's your guilt. It's your shame that you feel. And so that should cause you to slant justice, to twist justice in certain cases because of that collective guilt that you've inherited. And there's a popular preacher today who surprisingly endorses this idea of collective guilt. And it's very surprising to me. He argues from Achan's family's death and Daniel's prayer and Adam's original sin that collective guilt is a biblical thing. And hey, if I had another hour, I would love to walk through every one of those scenarios and show why it is absolutely not, unquestionably not, an example of the Bible teaching collective guilt. You've got another hour, don't you? At this point, why stop now? But instead of doing that, we don't have to do that. We can do better. We can go to a passage in the Bible that unequivocally denies that interpretation of these passages and shows what God really thinks about collective guilt. I'm not going to put this up on the screens. It's a long passage, but it's in Ezekiel 18. If you want to turn there in your Bible, feel free to do that. Ezekiel chapter 18. Some of you have probably never heard this passage before, or if you read through it, you just skimmed over it and you didn't realize this is what is in there. This is really amazing. If you want to know what God thinks about collective guilt, here you go. But suppose that man has a son. The man is a righteous man in the verses earlier. But suppose that man has a son who grows up to be a robber or murderer and refuses to do what is right. And that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor and helpless, oppresses the poor and helpless. There's injustice. Steals from debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security. Worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money at excessive interest. Should such a sinful person live? No. He must die and must take full blame. Ezekiel 18, if you're still turning there. But suppose that sinful son, in turn, has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. This son refuses to worship idols on the mountains and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees. Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live, but the father will die for his many sins, for being cruel, robbing people, and doing what was clearly wrong among his people." And he goes on, what you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? Isn't there collective guilt here? No, God says, for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. 
The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if wicked people, this is so amazing, listen to this. If wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. This is in the Old Testament, people. All their past sins will be forgotten and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. What is God saying here? Not only is there no collective guilt for those of you that that had a, a parent who did something bad, you don't share any of that guilt or shame. There certainly is no collective guilt for ancestors or or people of the same group identity as you that you've never met before. But there isn't even guilt for the bad things you did 10 minutes ago if you've confessed them to God. Isn't that amazing? This whole idea of collective guilt is purely unbiblical. And God makes it absolutely plain. This could not be more clear. And listen, if you're someone that's believed that lie, I know people that have been just been chewed up over this because they have believed the lie of the enemy that you bear guilt. You have collective guilt and that should drive you to do these things and implement this agenda. And there's so much good twisted in with the bad that it almost seems like it makes sense. But if you're someone that's bought into that, this should bring great freedom for you. There is no such thing as collective guilt with God for this. God holds you responsible for what you do. And even if you were involved in injustice, if you turn to him and reject that previous injustice, those wicked ways, what does he say? Your past sins will be forgotten and you will live because of the righteous things that you are now doing. That's a message of freedom. That's what God really wants us to understand about guilt. The next one is social justice B. Sees every disparity as evidence of discrimination. In the last year, this has meant that every disparity between people of different skin colors is evidence of racism. So different rates of being pulled over by the police, racism. Different frequencies of Alzheimer's, racism. Uh, That's in a major book on this issue out there, that Alzheimer's is is affecting people because of racism. Different impact of COVID-19, racism. And I want to be clear. I want to be very clear about something here. Disparity can be a warning light that racism is happening. I am not saying that disparity means, well, there's nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. Not at all. Some people make the mistake of thinking that that everything is fine and that disparities don't indicate racism at all. But disparities can absolutely reveal racism. I am not saying to not look into disparities to see if there is something racist going on there or discriminatory or unjust going on there. But this message right now is about social justice B and social justice B finds racism and discrimination in every disparity. That's, that's a hallmark of it. That's part of the deal. But the truth is there are many, many factors that explain disparities, individual choices, Ages, cultures, lifestyles, countries of origin, income levels, and many other things. And sometimes there are multiple contributing factors to disparities. And and sometimes none of them have anything to do with racism. And sometimes some of them do. Sometimes some secondary causes, you can find some things in there. So I'm not saying to, to just ignore the whole thing. Not at all. Let's talk about the, um, the turnpike, the New Jersey turnpike, for example. A few years ago, there was a big disparity between the number of black people being pulled over and the number of white people being pulled over. 
And so social justice be advocates said, this is racism. This is clearly racism. You don't even have to question it. It's racism. So somebody did a study. They put together a study and they put cameras up and down this section of the New Jersey Turnpike. And so they could track the speed of the car and they could take a picture of the driver. And do you know what they found? What they found was that the African-American drivers were speeding much more than the white drivers. And that accounted entirely for the disparity in people getting pulled over. So were people being pulled over because they were black? Well, the evidence says no. They were getting pulled over because they were speeding more. But you ask, why was there a disparity in speeding along those lines? Well, they did a little more research. And they looked in the demographics of the area. And what they found was that in this particular stretch of the New Jersey Turnpike, the neighborhoods that lived there, the neighborhoods that were predominantly white consisted of all older people. And the neighborhoods that were predominantly black consisted of almost entirely younger people. And many studies show that the group that is more likely to speed is the younger people. And so what they demonstrated and why they stopped talking about this as an example is that the disparity was there, but it was based on age, not race. And it wasn't based on discriminating people that were younger. The cops weren't sitting there going, yeah, he looks under 40. Let's pull him over. No. It was just because younger people tend to speed more. Older people are more more cautious, more careful, more wise. (laughs) And that explained the disparity. This This is the situation that we are in. The problem with social justice be is that it does not ask the question, could this disparity indicate discrimination? It just assumes that it does. Does that make sense? We cannot run the other direction and say, no disparity indicates any discrimination. Not at all. Disparities absolutely do sometimes indicate discrimination. For sure. But the mistake is in thinking, there's a disparity, it's discrimination, end of case. That's it. You can't deny it. No, there are other factors that can contribute. Take the example of the the NFL that I mentioned a a couple of weeks ago. The NFL where um, you had people who were getting paid less money as a medical benefit specifically because the NFL assumed that black athletes started with a lower cognitive function than white athletes. A couple of years ago in 2018, some black athletes started talking with their white teammates and talking about the money and saying, here's what I'm getting. What are you getting? We have the same injury, the same issue. I'm getting a lot less than you are. What's going on here? There's a disparity. Well, let's dig into that. Why is there a disparity? And they dug and they dug and they found out. And this practice ended a couple of months ago in June, by the way. This is not an old story. In June of this year, they finally convinced the NFL to stop discriminating on the basis of race by assuming that black people started with a lower cognitive function when they handed out their benefits. I'm no brain surgeon, but that sure sounds like racism to me. And that's awful. And yet there was a disparity And people looked into it and they found, wow, there is actually real discrimination happening here that shouldn't be happening. Both can be true. The mistake is in thinking that it's always discrimination every time there is a disparity. And of course, if you question that by the social justice be advocates, you will be told you're only questioning that because of your privilege. You're in the power identity. You're in the power group. In fact, what you think doesn't really matter that much. It's the lower group on the hierarchy. You have to believe them. What they say is true. They have special knowledge because of their group identity. In fact, the fact that you're even questioning it probably means you're racist. 
That's what social justice B does. It's a twisting of justice. It's the subversion of the truth. It's counterfeit justice. And all of these social justice B principles build to the real agenda. The real agenda, number five, is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. Now, you may think of that in terms of men and women, but that's not what egalitarianism means. Egalitarianism means equity or equality of outcome. Egalitarianism is the philosophical perspective that all people should be equal, not just in their rights and opportunities, but in their wealth and outcomes. A lot of social justice B is focused on economic egalitarianism. If someone has less, it's only because of his or her group identity, so enough should be taken from the one who has more to make things more equal. Let's balance things out. That is economic egalitarianism. Or you might say it this way, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. If that sounds familiar, it's because it was the slogan used by Karl Marx to promote Marxism. And in fact, economic egalitarianism was literally the basis for both Marxism and socialism. And I don't want to be talking about Marxism and socialism today. But the more I study this, it just keeps popping up. The connections are there. I can't, I can't ignore it. Even last night I was thinking, is there any way I can do this whole thing without talking about Marxism and socialism? I don't want to talk about that. But it is so interwoven into all of social justice bees thinking that the connections are there at a deeper level than I ever understood myself before. I don't talk about this to scare you or do you, oh, Marxism, you know, the boogeyman, and now you've got to run from social justice bees. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm saying it because it's true. The similarities are there and they are very helpful to understand. All three of these worldviews, Marxism, socialism, and social justice bees, stand in opposition to the Bible. That's why we're talking about it. Marx believed that the lower class needed to abandon religion because it was keeping them from overthrowing the wealthy class, the group identities. Religion gets in the way of that. Religion seeks truth that is higher than what we understand, but if we can get rid of that truth, then we can kind of make it whatever we want it to be, and now we can pit the groups against each other. Social justice B is, is sometimes just as bold and sometimes tries to woo the religious in by making social justice B just look like helping people in need. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to help people in need. And Christians are all about helping people in need. And we should be. But social justice B, and hear me well, I'm not talking about social justice A. We talked about that a while ago. I'm talking social justice B, the, the counterfeit justice. It's actually its own religion. It worships the God of economic egalitarianism. It believes in inherited sin, not from Adam as a sin nature, but from the deeds of your ancestors who had the same group identity as you. It even has methods of justifying yourself with good works and conversion stories of new believers and a strong emphasis on evangelism for the social justice because its own version of redemption and heaven. Christians should absolutely be engaged in helping people in need, but not out of guilt and not even really out of justice. Justice would mean that they deserve what you have and you are wrong not to give it to them. But the Bible teaches that we should help people out of compassion and love and the grace of God being stewarded in this world by his followers. That's why we help people in need. Man, I would love to spend more time on this, but I need to land the plane. What does the Bible say about economic egalitarianism and equality of outcome? Proverbs 24 says, those too lazy to plow in the right season will have no food at the harvest. There's going to be a different outcome, and it is biblically endorsed. 
Second Thessalonians 3 says, even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. So we're going to double down now. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their living. The Bible teaches that there is an individual responsibility. And hey, when a person cannot work, then absolutely the Bible teaches that people should rally around and help them. Their family, first of all, is the first line that should help them. And then if they're a believer, the church, and there's nothing wrong with the government having programs in place to help people that are in need and cannot work, cannot do what they need to do. But if they can work. The Bible says if they don't work, their outcome should be different. It is not helpful to give them the same outcome if they weren't willing to work. It creates entitlement. It enables them. It creates something called paternalism. If you want to look more into this, there are two books I highly recommend, When Helping Hurts and Toxic Charity. Both of those books, When Helping Hurts and Toxic Charity, are phenomenal at exposing the problem that happens when we say we just want to help people no matter what, and we don't think about maybe we're actually causing more harm than good. The Bible teaches that there is individual responsibility and that personal choices will lead to different situations. And listen, if you want economic egalitarianism, there is only one way to get it, and that is by injustice. The only way to do it is to go to the people that have and take away from them by force so that we can make everything equal. So there's equity across the board, not just equal opportunity, but equal outcomes. The only way to do that is to violate a number of biblical principles by saying, we are now going to take from the haves to give to the have-nots so that they don't have to follow this principle of if you don't work, you won't eat. That's the problem with social justice being where it stands in opposition to biblical teaching. Christians need to know this. Listen, I understand that it's very, very likely there are many ways to misinterpret what I am saying. I get that. And I wish I could give another hour of clarification. But I am putting this out there in the hopes that you will watch this whole series. Don't take this message as a standalone. Watch the whole series and understand our perspective on justice as it comes from the Bible. There are elements going on in this world right now with social justice B that look so good and they're so tempting and there's elements of truth mixed with elements of an agenda that is clearly unbiblical. And Christians, we need to be able to learn to tell the difference. We need the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment, to know the difference, to rightly divide between what is true and what is counterfeit justice. I want to end with something I said a couple weeks ago at the end of my message on justice. Do we have to know the ultimate cause or the ultimate solution in order to start helping people? Because it sure seems like there are a lot of things we can start doing now to help people. We don't have to wait until we have this all figured out. And you may walk out of here today and say, Adam, I totally disagree with you. I think actually critical theory is a great thing. I don't see any of those roots in Marxism. I think it's a helpful tool and, and, and it raises some good questions. I've already said that. But I disagree with you. Okay, great. Go help people. And I disagree with you about social justice B. I think a lot of those, those comments that you made were taken, those quotes were taken out of context and that's not really what they meant. And okay, fine, go help people. Whatever you take away from this today, even if we disagree on some of this stuff, the, the bottom line is we are called by God out of compassion and love and as stewards of God's grace to go help people. So let's do it. Let's do it. Even if we disagree on some of this other stuff. Even if you don't see the problems with the collective guilt causing this agenda that social justice be is pushing. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Okay, may God reveal the truth to you in time and let's go help people.
And that's what next week is all about. Make sure you come back next week to hear all the practical ways that we can get out there and help people. And remember, only nursery and preschool are open. <laughs> so bring your kindergartners on up into this room. I had to get one more laugh in there before we close. This is a heavy topic. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you so much for your word and for what it teaches us. And some of this stuff is so complicated and so obscure and so complex, and I think the enemy does that on purpose, that it makes it really hard to tell what's right from what's wrong. And even a lot of the stuff that I've said today probably could easily be twisted and, and misunderstood or I miscommunicated it. And we could walk out of here on, on different pages on a lot of things. My hope, God, is that you would just work through your spirit to help each of us to understand what's going on in the world and, and how to respond to it and what we should do, not just as keyboard warriors, but as people actually getting out there and helping people. Whether it's the refugees coming over from Afghanistan or the, the neighbor across the street who needs something, people in our community who, who do not have as many resources, God, to help them, not, not out of guilt or some concept of creating some sort of uh, utopia where everyone is equal in everything. We know that only you can do that, and you're going to do that one day. You're going to make everything just. But for now, Lord, help us to help people in the right ways with the right motivations having your love for others. I pray that for everybody that's in this room, for everybody that's watching online, Lord. Would you bless us as we do these things? Would you guide us? Would you give us discernment and wisdom? And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here today. I'm gonna to have to cancel the closing song more often. That felt good. <laughs> um, you, you know, in all honesty, that means a lot because this was a year of study and research that led to this moment. And it's not an easy topic to go into, that's for sure. <clears throat> You're making me emotional. Why do you do this to me? Uh, as you leave today, if you wanna to give to support the ministry of First Free Church, efree.org slash give is the place to do it. If you've got a prayer request, our prayer team's gonna be up here up front. would love to pray for you. If you've got a question about something you heard today, I'm gonna to be up here. Feel free to come up and ask away or, or share any insights that you have. And um, if you wanna connect with us, go to efree.org slash connect. Submit a prayer request there. If you're watching online, you can do that as well. Have a wonderful week, everybody. We'll see you here next week for how you can get involved. God bless.